to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Hey, it's Corbin Goebel. This is uh, the 1.37 p.m. podcast. Today, we're joined by Stefan Paterno, who founded theglobe.com, who many cite as the birth of the internet, the birth of social media and online communities. Um, he wrote a book be- called A Very Public Offering, where uh, in which he details the dizzying rise and fall of theglobe.com and what he learned from it. He was one of the founders of The Globe, which is an early online community. Um, became very influential. You know, uh, he was he was there at the beginning when all these people, you know, Mark Andreessen, Netscape, all these people are scrambling around trying to figure out what the internet is, how to how to make it happen. And uh, yeah, we're gonna chop it up about that. How are you doing today? I'm defrosting. Defrosting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not used to this after living in LA for I don't know eight years now. He flew straight here from LA. Uh, a day or two ago, but of course yeah. I came with a very light accoutrement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so I guess my my first question is just sort of uh, about right now the tech world has become so prominent. I mean, one of the sort of focal points of one thirty seven p.m. is how more young people are like attuned into what Elon Musk is doing as opposed to like yeah. Tom Brady. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. that he kind of impacts their life more. I would, I would love to kind of get your thoughts just in terms of, you know, maybe tell your origin story and like how how that kind of gives you perspective on what's going on now. There's sort of a lot of um, you know consternation about the tech world right now, mm-hmm. and I think. Uh, yeah, what, what, what's uh, where do you start? What's your lens here? Well, I mean, I think mentioning Elon Musk is 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 apt because he's now an icon, and it's really great to see that the icons of today are the disruptors, are the people who are using their minds and willpower to reinvent the world we're in. Back when I was getting started, there was another icon at the time who was just as disruptive. His name was Richard Branson. And uh, I, I was growing up in the UK back then, and Richard Branson was all over the news all the time for doing crazy things like trying to break world records crossing the Atlantic and hot air ballooning and right, all right. sorts of death-defying stunts. But there was always a, a method to his madness in terms of building his brand and creating new industry segments. And he was one of the inspirations um, when it finally came time for me to get started and build the globe.com which was back in 94 and you know there wasn't there was no internet that anyone knew of so i was totally going off on a on a limb here with this whole concept and guys like him helped give me confidence that it was okay totally and you you know you grew up in switzerland and england and then came to uh you know the united states ithaca to go to college uh what what kind of things do you think you maybe brought over from overseas in terms of when you're you know you're partnering up with this uh a friend of yours in school you're starting to kind of like build these things together you're learning html you're having to download html packets just wherever you can find them you, there's there's something really democratic about it but it also requires like an intellect to sort of figure out how to move it forward? I mean, what what sort of things do you think you, growing up in Europe, like, gave you perspective on how to, uh, how well, to I have Well, I have a bit of a circuitous path, because I was actually born in Palo Alto right. at Stanford Hospital, so amazingly, the epicenter of the Bay Area, but I left when I was four and grew up in Switzerland, 
And then eventually my parents divorced, and then I briefly relocated with my mom and sister to Greenwich, Connecticut, and then she met a Swedish guy living in London, and we relocated to London, and then eventually I had this overwhelming desire when I was 18 to go and re-experience America, rediscover America, because all I really knew was from Europe. So already the whole concept of the American dream, that can-do country where anything goes, was was within me. Uh, but... What really sort of helped me, I think, launch and give me the drive to create theglobe.com was something I only really discovered way after theglobe.com, which was that all this moving around and family divorce and changing languages and changing cultures meant I didn't have the cultural touch points that helped me bond with my peers and my friends. I I never felt like I really fit in anywhere. Uh, I never felt really comfortable wherever I was. And... The internet in my mind captured my imagination because it would allow me to create some sort of a virtual community, some sort of a virtual family that would travel with me and be with me for life. So in some sense, subconsciously, it was the answer to a whole lot of unknown questions that I had that made me just not feel like I fit into the world. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, in like a log line of a press release, there's connecting the globe to Facebook. I mean, what do you do you think? Do you think there's a lineage there that you kind of built and in, in what and why? Uh, well, I, I so why? I, I didn't particularly think so back when Facebook first started. Um, my brothers were in college and they were telling me about this thing called the Facebook and and where did they go to school? Did they go to one of, the schools um, one of them Facebook was at early? Harvard? One of them gotcha. was at Harvard gotcha. uh, right around when Zuckerberg was there and starting Facebook. Um, and one of them was at Duke. And very quickly, they mentioned the Facebook to me. And then eventually, when I started using the Facebook back when it was called the Facebook, uh, I started to realize, oh wait, this is this sort of new incarnation of virtual community. And that was the thing even before people really called it a social network. Um, But it's really over the last two decades that the media and historians who've been documenting the internet have been coming and saying, hey, Steph, how does it feel to have been the original Mark Zuckerberg? Or, you know, the Globe was the original Facebook before Facebook. So it's other people saying that. And I've just accepted like, okay, well, if, (laughs) you know, I mean, if I'm going to be compared to somebody now, I don't mind being compared to the inventor of Facebook because what Facebook did was completely validate the entire concept of virtual community, which, by the way, back when we were doing it, was a laughable concept. People just thought it was absurd. Why would people want to live online and chat online when they can just use a telephone or meet in person, better yet? Right. Totally. And, and, and so much of your book is sort of about you know a very public offering available on Amazon. <laughs> yep. Yeah, check. Uh, it... Uh, it's about sort of the early speculation of the sale of the internet and, you know, you are worth a lot on paper and it's sort of about losing it all and, and, and having, you know, this speculation. I'm just thinking of the scene where you're at the IPO and they're like, you, you're thinking it's going to go for eight bucks, mm-hmm. $8, right? Mm-hmm. And then what did they take it? It was 90? Yeah. It I mean, was we, all over it, the place, it, but it was like... Well, there was a perfect storm of events that occurred. It wasn't like my partner and I had some magic wand and had this incredible right, right. ability to make our stock go up. It's well, just, we were about to go to war and we didn't. Yeah, there was and, there was yeah. a, there there had been a market collapse. Um, long-term capital management for those who care about 
what sparked it all off. Long-term capital management, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, had collapsed, which then dragged down the ruble, which also there was a, an Asian currency collapse. There was this, all these things going on around the world that suddenly caused the U.S. stock market to go into a rapid contraction right when we had filed to go public. So all this money that would have normally poured into 100-plus other IPOs had been pulled out. And everyone was sitting there panicking and freaking out. And our IPO was sort of dead on arrival because nobody wanted to put their money into an IPO in a, in a bad market. And eventually, in a very brief window in the late November of 98, and you'd mentioned the Iraq war, that was the other thing going on right the morning of our IPO was that uh, Clinton had sent a bunch of uh, an, a fleet, an aircraft carrier group to the Middle East to sort of punish Saddam Hussein for some new shenanigans he was pulling. And of course, whenever there's talk about war, the markets just get skittish and everything goes yep, sideways. Not good for the market. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like sitting there that morning going, what, yeah. what else could go wrong? Please. Yeah. Right. Start a war. Why don't you? Yeah. Uh, but that didn't happen. And so finally, on November 13th of 98, our stock, uh, which, which had been priced really, really low because the market had been so bad, Everyone, our bankers had kept lowering and lowering and lowering and lowering the price. But then in a 48-hour period, suddenly as the market stabilized, everyone that had pulled their money out of the market was now wanting to put it back in. And we were that one hot.com, you know, pitching this crazy idea of virtual community that people wanted to get into. And, and so, why, why do you think? Why do you think that was you guys? Like, what do you think was the sort of there's you know in your book you're kind of there's a lot of things swirling mm. in that lane. You you know you're kind of paying attention. You're you feel like you're racing with Netscape or or whatever. And and what what do you think was the it, what was interesting? Do you think to investors about your company that the other companies didn't have? So, the 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 pump had been primed a bit in that for a few years now there'd been talk about this thing called the internet. Netscape had gone public in either late 95 or 96, and their stock had tripled, and everyone was going, whoa, 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 what's this internet thing, and what's this company Netscape, and they're supposed to be the new Microsoft now? So there was already some excitement in Wall Street for this whole new paradigm, but no one understood what the internet was. Then I think later in 96, uh, Yahoo went public and went up. And eventually, a couple other dot coms went public, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a mania. There was just sort of this gradual buildup of interest in the sector. And when then there was GeoCities that had gone public, which was a community esque homepage hosting site, and they'd gone up. And then eBay, not long before us, had gone had gone public and done well. So now there was a, a growing interest in the sector. But not quite a mania yet, because these stocks, although they'd gone up, they'd also come down. And when the market had collapsed in 98, all of those dot-coms I just mentioned had seen their stocks fall to below their IPO prices. So people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. This dot-com, those few dot-coms aren't maybe such a good idea. But we'd, got, we'd gone on our roadshow. 170 companies had canceled their roadshows, and we continued to do ours. And we had a good pitch, and we showed all of our metrics of the crazy growth we were having. And I think people liked the story. A couple young guys inventing virtual community, blah, blah, blah. There was some excitement to it, but not enough to turn the markets around. But when the markets did turn around, uh, I think that that pent-up excitement about what the internet could be piled into our stock, plus our stock had been it turns out artificially depressed by Bear Stearns, which was highly unethical what they did, and I, I'm still a little bitter today towards what they did. And they no longer exist. And they no longer exist, which was 
potentially, uh, you know, a little bit of poetry here in that they had their comeuppance 10, 10 years after we did. Uh, but uh, there was this 45 million shares of pent-up demand for our 3 million share offering. So our, our stock was 15-fold oversubscribed. And Bear Stearns, what they did was refuse to move the price up, yeah, which makes, would have yeah. been like right. to, to, to recalibrate the supply and demand equation right, here. Right. They didn't do it. So of the morning of the IPO, once we the, the market opened, our stock shot up. And it shot from what was going to be, I think, $9 a share to 87 and then up to 97 And all these institutions Bear Stearns had let in uh, over the preceding couple days all dumped their stock. Normally, the institutions buy in and they hold long. And here, yeah. they were like, oh my God, we just went up 1,000%. Christmas yeah. came early. Yeah, exactly. Sold all their stock, sold exactly. it to every single mom and pop and day trader out there that just wanted to get into any dot com. Right. Zero institutional support, basically. Zero institutional support, <laughs> yeah. which just doesn't bode well for the long yeah, term. Yeah, it's not, yeah. So it meant our stock not was now <laughs> held, right. So our stock yeah. was held by a lot of inexperienced investors who panic when the stock is volatile. Right. And so our story of the globe.com, for better or worse, I really think for worse, became a story about a stock. The crazy stock that went up and then the crazy stock that went down. And it doesn't matter how much our company grew underneath. It doesn't matter that the globe had 10% of all internet users hitting our site every month. It didn't matter that our revenues were tripling and quadrupling and quintupling year over year. People were just obsessively focused on our stock. And we became this story of everything that's amazing about the internet and everything that's terrible about the internet. And we've had to live with that. And that's been our story ever since. And what what do you think is like the most you know, unfair or, you know, you're saying there's this misperception, like, uh, you had, you had a million shares of the company, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so I think people can do the math on if uh, stock price goes to $87, how (laughs) much are you worth on paper? Uh, what, what, what's kind of the biggest misperception do you think about just what you guys were doing? And, and do you, you know, you're, I feel like this is such a surreal landscape you're playing in. Mm -hmm. You're like walking into Bear Stearns and no one's bothering you. You know, you're wearing whatever jeans or khakis Mm or a ratty college sweatshirts, I I believe is how you put it. But, um, what, what do you think is the biggest misperception about your story? You know, you're saying it's kind of becomes this big banger bust headline, but what's sort of the one thing you hope people remember about it? Well, I think it's important for people to remember that, uh, when we were starting and building the globe and the internet was brand new, no one was going into this for the money or the glory. You were going into this because, in fact, you didn't think you could fit in with any regular job. You know, all the options out there to go join the big banks or become a big time lawyer or accountant or God knows what and the safe path. That wasn't what we were picking. The, the internet was the crazy path. The, oh my God, I can't believe you're going to throw away your college degree to go work on some computer network thing. So there was a purity to the vision back then. And that goes for Mark Andreessen with Netscape, Todd and I with The Globe, and anyone else that had started back then. We were trying to usher in this new digital future. And too bad, we'll never make any money doing it, but at least it might do something amazing for society. Everything changed after... Um, the Globe IPO, because what we accidentally did with that 1,000% run-up and being two of the youngest CEOs of a public company ever is it created a sensational story that everyone then wanted to emulate, which was, 
oh wow, if any two kids can go make a billion dollar company, we want the same thing, we can do the same thing. And all of a sudden, everyone wanted to be a dot com. Every business idea, no matter how much of a crackpot, wanted to be a dot com. And that is where big money always corrupts everything. And so the big misperception is that companies like the Globe were in it for the money. It's like, no way, not a chance. If people who came after the globe started to be in it for the money, and when that happens is you have a bubble that starts to form. Everyone's coming in for the money. Everyone was raising 10 times more money than we were raising. We then had to compete with that, and it became this unsustainable market of everyone having the fear of missing out. So everyone with money is throwing money at anything with a dot-com, and business plans that shouldn't work, we're, we're just living off of all this venture capital money flowing in. Right. So the big question is, do you see that happening now? What do you, what, when yeah. you're looking at now, this tech, just, you know, many of uh, America's largest and most funded um, companies that are, get the most press are, don't turn a profit, probably won't for a long, long time. Do you see, what do you see in today's market that reminds you of this, that uh, if you kind of viewing that as a cautionary tale? Do you see that happening again, and why? Yes, but for maybe a different reason than you're thinking. I think that the big companies today, the market leaders, are leaders for a whole host of other better reasons than what we had back then. Back then, all these companies were getting valuations based on the promise of what they were going to deliver. User base and rate of growth was enough. Losing money, you know, Amazon losing a billion dollars a year, doesn't matter. They were capturing market share. Nowadays, these big companies have generated massive revenues. Most of them are profitable. They aren't the place where the cautionary tale is occurring. Although there's cautionary tales with what the internet has become, what social media has become, the, the echo chambers and social media addiction, the fake news, the identity thefts, the... You, the inadvertent weaponizing of your personal data against you. I mean, these are all horrible distortions that have now occurred. And those are cautionary tales, but the other cautionary tale has to do with the whole cryptocurrency world that's occurring. Everyone that's talking about cryptocurrency, and really, it just went through its own bubble and bubble burst last year. Yeah. In but a crazy quick amount of time. Crazy quick amount of time. <laughs> Five times faster than yeah, the internet yeah. bubble. And I made the comparison myself and posted it on Twitter last year, which was, hey, guys, this, this incredible run-up of 20x over a course of a year happened five times faster than the internet one. Yeah. Maybe it's good time to take money off the table, and it will collapse. And good news is, is probably the recovery will also be five times faster. So get ready for that. And in 2018 played out exactly that way. And for everyone who now says like, oh, well, you know, all that cryptocurrency blockchain bullshit, just like the dot-com days of way back then, I say, well, substitute the words, you know, what is, what is blockchain and what is it good for with the word internet? Yeah. And you have 1994 through 2001 all over again. And just because crypto became the big cautionary tale of 2018 doesn't mean, just like the internet, it's not going to have its renaissance and become a life-altering transformation just like the internet did. And we, who here could ever say you know, we could live without the internet now? Well, in 10 to 20 years, you're going to be saying, I do not know how the internet ever survived without the blockchain. It is the new Web 3.0 frontier. And so, yes, there's 
sort of to bring it back to why I'm here with a book and there's this TV show and everything and why the timing of it. Yeah, maybe the Nat Geo TV show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so this this whole TV series just sort of happened out of the blue, and I I just am one of the unwitting subjects and stories in this in this new series, Valley of the Boom. Uh, but I also updated my book specifically because I wanted to sort of set the record straight and also really talk about what the hell did I really learn in these last 20 years. Um, and the timing of it between the TV series coming out and me updating my book, was, is it seems on point because everyone right now is questioning the dark side of the internet that's occurred. And I, I mentioned that laundry list a minute ago yeah, about everything media. that's gone wrong. Yeah, right. Like everyone's, everyone, all the young people who've grown up with the internet right now are saying, how did we get here? I mean, I've grown up with the internet. It's always been there. We need to learn what happened. What was the original vision, this utopian vision? How did it get so distorted? How do we course correct this? Because if we can't look back and learn, we can't correct it. So they're the ones who are now, I think, most interested in revisiting the dot-com boom and using that knowledge to course correct with the blockchain. So I think that's what's so fascinating now. And I think there's a million lessons to be learned. And it's, it's high time Silicon Valley spent a little more time looking backwards for a minute at the benefits and the drawbacks and the ethical impacts of their technology instead of always racing forward and you know, the, the byproducts and side effects and the consequences be damned, which is typical of Silicon Valley. Right, totally. Yeah, so, you know, you were kind of mentioning, like, there's so much social media noise and there's just so much, like, to interact with and engage with. Like, what are some things, do you think, when, after this experience, what were the things that helped you recenter yourself? Like, if you're a young entrepreneur, what should you be paying attention to? What should you be ignoring? Like, what, you know, and these can be extremely high level, but it's like, I'm kind of curious to, th- you know, to know what, uh, how, what, what noise is irrelevant, what should you actually be paying attention to and, and what are what are your sources for that do you have like a mentor are there sources you revisit or are there uh kind of pillars you really adhere to when when you can yes i'm going to try to think about all the things you just brought up because there's a <laughs> lot of there's a lot i've learned that i i really did want to share and do want to share with the next generation of entrepreneurs so the the first big thing for everyone to know is after the incredible globe experience which was a seven-year adventure, six and a half years of going, working my way up, and then half a year of a rapid collapse, uh, is that I needed to take time off and go into the wilderness, disconnect from the internet. I was one of those people that wanted to have nothing to do with the internet after 2001. And then a few years later, the internet renaissance kicked in with the arrival of Google and the concept of AdWords and AdSense, and then eventually Facebook with the weaving in of, of social the social networking into the fabric of the internet. And now everyone has come to a point where we all live with the internet and can't manage without it. And I think it was important for me to take what turned out to be a good 10 years off to recalibrate, recenter myself. And really when you have distance from the noise is when you're able to see the big picture from 35,000 feet up, you can start to see the patterns. Because when you're too close in the noise, you're looking for a little bit of signal right in front of your nose and you're missing the macro picture. So I think that if you're, 
you're plugged into everything going on right now, you're going to be more likely than anything reacting to little micro movements of where the internet looks to be going, and you're going to be missing the big arcs, the big trends. So I think you need to step away from it, a lot of it, to really understand more deeply what do you believe in, what are the first principles you want to work from, where is society going? And I needed to do this myself for me to finally come come up with my next career, which which is slated and film finance. And I, to, you know, I can get into that and more in a minute. But having the distance and the space and the calmness and the centering of yourself allowed me to better understand where the world was heading. Right, everyone's heading online. Uh, Everyone's consuming more and more content and video content and film content and entertainment content. Everyone now is, um, you know, there's the Netflixes of the world and the Amazons and Hulu, and they're all coming up to reinvent how you watch content. And I'm just using this as a parallel to understand, so people can understand how they may want to apply this to themselves. But it's by seeing the much, much bigger picture that I was able to go further ahead than just, oh, I'm going to create a digital distribution platform that's going to go head to head with Apple and Amazon and all these companies when they were when they were starting out. No, I need to see further up the food chain. If more content's being created and everyone's now consuming it through all these new devices and streaming technologies, well, how are they sourcing the content? How are they assembling the content? How are they finding it? Because nobody's reinventing that. Right? So it's allowed me to zig when everyone else is zagging. And it gives you the time to really get ahead of the curve. And really think, again, working from first principles, Earth's population is increasing. The demand for content is increasing. The complexity of identifying and finding what's going to be the next best content for the world is getting harder and harder. But none of that's going away. So how do I help solve that problem of sourcing more content for the right people in an ever-expanding and complicated market? And that allows me as an entrepreneur to really dig deep and come up with Slated, for instance. And I think all entrepreneurs need to take the time to think more deeply instead of coming up with the next quick fix app that's going to give you that quick hit you need. Yeah, Social well, it's, media. Like opportun- it's like opportunistic, right? As opposed to this. Yeah, where- very short term yeah. and myopic and reactive. And yes, you can make a living doing that. Some people like to react fast and move yeah, fast. Yeah, just keep churning it- to the yeah. next thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I happen to be somebody who wants to sort of step back and think, where are we going to be in the next 10 years? How do I get to that point of convergence in 10 years? Gotcha. Yeah, and, and and I guess tell me a little bit more about Slated and what you kind of saw the the macro opportunity there. I mean, I think that's a very interesting. Like you're saying, there's a uh, there is a high demand for as much streaming content as possible by you know not just uh, Netflix and YouTube, but anything that has that platform and distribution network. And there's a lot of you know, uh, I'm, as a writer, I know a lot of writers have kind of been like, all right, I'm writing a TV show now. You know, like that's kind of where the work's. Been. I, I'm kind of curious to see like what you thought, wh- what kind of big opportunity is there, and what and what sort of like mo- like wh- how did you figure out you wanted to disrupt that industry? And uh, I, I do, you know, I'm with you. It's it's enormous. It's not going away. Yeah, it it, it was born out of a passion. I, I since I was a child, I loved movies. I loved great TV shows, and I I don't know anyone on planet Earth that hasn't watched something and doesn't love something. Uh, that's filmed or video or t- on TV. Um, and I was always wondering, who are the, how do these things get made? Who are the people that make them? I had this desire to peek behind the curtain 
and see who are these less than 1% of Earth's population, probably less than 0.1%, that actually create the content that the other 99.9% of us consume. Uh, and so that preoccupied me in the back of my mind during my career with the Globe and, and thereafter. And I started off by just deciding, okay, I'm going to make some short films. And I, just, and I discovered very quickly that there's no real market for short films. Not the, This is in the pre-YouTube days. But it taught me a huge amount about the filmmaking process. And I also tried a little bit of acting. And I even went so far as taking two years of Meisner training. And really the best thing that came out of that is it taught me a huge amount about uh, self-analysis and the human condition. And it was more about like psychology 101, although I'd say it's much more advanced than that. It was, it was basically years of therapy where you get up and go perform what you've learned about the human condition. I would actually recommend it as one of the greatest tools to help you develop as a good leader for your organization so that you learn how to really interact with people the right way and understand how you come across as a person. Uh, but I kept, I kept at it cause I was so passionate about this. And so again, uh, important thing I'm saying here is I didn't just go after something because there was a market opportunity and there could be money made. No, I found something I'm super passionate about, had no idea how I could make money doing it, but that passion kept leading to bigger and bigger structures and opportunities. So from short films, I co-founded a film production company called Palm Star, where we said, you know what, let's, we're entering an interesting era here. We're telling true stories biographies, inspirational stories of other entrepreneurs, other people who've gone through incredible hardships, incredible adventures, is interesting to people. So let's get some movies like that made. And it just got me deeper and deeper, not into trouble, but into the film industry where I realized, oh my God, this film industry is incredibly fragmented and messy and opaque and inefficient. And it, people used to say all the time in the film industry stuff, getting a movie made is a miracle. And I kept wondering, wait, why, why is getting any movie made a miracle. And I learned the hard way why. Because it's, it's so much about random interactions between someone with a great project idea and someone who's got the talent and someone with the money and random run-ins at a festival and at a film market or over dinner. And no one really knows whether the thing could make money or not. And often stuff gets made that has no merit. And I realized, you know what? There's an opportunity here. And this is what the internet was invented for was to help create and simplify by, by creating an online marketplace. And if, if someone could create a marketplace where it makes it as easy as going and shopping on Amazon to go and find a great movie or great project to partner up on or invest in, that would be quite a game changer for the film industry. So it was a, it was a gradual, it, it took me 10 years, again, of big macro picture viewing by, by doing, by executing in the industry and taking time to look back at the big patterns, I was able to see this giant gaping opportunity, this $300 billion entertainment market for film and television that isn't being reinvented in terms of process. And why don't I give it a shot? And Slated, for those who are in the tech world who, who, who may be listening here, uh, Slated is angel list for the film industry. And so everyone in tech, everyone who has a startup usually has an angel list profile for themselves personally, probably an angel list profile for one or many of the companies they've started and are aware that angel list is a transparent marketplace for recruiting talent, finding investors and really marketing yourself to the, the tech ecosystem. And we've done the exact same thing for the film industry. And uh, now we're at a point where Slated has, uh, 
half of the movies that have been nominated for Academy Awards the last few years are made by slated producers, directors, writers. So we've got half the industry on our platform and we're getting them to list more and more of their films. And essentially we've created a, a virtual studio. Uh, but instead of having thousands of employees work with us, um, it's, it's tens of thousands of producers, directors, writers using our tools to self-assemble and, and create a great signal for their film if it has commercial potential and artistic potential. And that's where um, Slated is really starting to shine. And again, I think for any entrepreneurs out there who want to build their business, the bigger your vision, I think the more time you need to take, again, to see the big picture. And you know, another thing I've learned is if you have a vision or, or have a challenge, don't push yourself too hard. Apply a gentle pressure to overcome the challenge. Apply a gentle pressure uh, to achieve your vision, and you'll find that solutions will appear organically. If you try to manufacture an outcome right here, right now, because you're in a hurry, you'll get frustrated, you'll burn out, you'll quit. So that's your worst enemy. It's pace yourself. It's a long distance race. As long as you really believe in what you're doing and apply that gentle daily pressure, uh, you'll get there. You know, with your experience with the globe, having watched the sort of evolution of social media, how far has that strayed from what you thought, you know, the appeal with the globe is and what communities were online and, and where, where are the big differences and what are, what do you see that you like and don't like about the current social media landscape? Yeah, so there, there are definitely a lot of parallels between what we were creating with the globe in terms of virtual community and the tools that were necessary to create that community and what social media has become today. Uh, the, the, the terminology, virtual community, social networking, is the only thing that's really different. The, under, the underpinnings of it, which is what, what was the internet to begin with, which is it's a giant online global village where you simply can connect with everybody you know and people of the similar interests and of course it's now an echo chamber of, of noise and disinformation but the tools that we had were chat rooms where people could just talk and get to know each other um, private chat rooms where you could go one-on-one -on -one. Uh, so like sort of the equivalent of instant messaging in some capacities uh, we we built email clubs so that you could create a group of people which are just like private groups today uh, we had created something, uh, we had free homepage hosting, so you could create a little corner of the internet for yourself or you could personalize it with your graphics and you could, we had, we launched tools called you publish where you could add these little modules to your page, your own little newsfeed, your own little photo albums, create your own little corner, which eventually became the equivalent of the Facebook wall. So yeah, our versions were way more clunky and less sexy. And if you go look back at the graphic graphical interface on the, the Wayback Machine online, you'll be, I mean, I'm embarrassed by how it looks by today's standards, but everything was embarrassing back then. So that's sure. okay. It's like the post, I mean, it's like the post jobs, Apple influence, everything needs to be beautiful as Absolutely. Possible, but but right? what's considered beautiful evolves over yeah, time. Yeah, of course. And of course you're limited with, with, with what's available. Back when Netscape, when we launched, uh, we were using a, a beta of Mosaic before it became Netscape and it didn't support graphics. Eventually one day it allowed you to post graphics. Could you center the graphic on the page? No. Could you make it clickable and blend it in with the background? No. You know, very limited capabilities, but we, we evolved slowly but surely. We were one of the first sites to invent this idea of having an icon in your chat room to represent you. So today, you know, that would be your avatar. 
uh, you would have emojis. But back then, it was like, oh my gosh, on the globe, you can actually click and pick an icon to represent you? That's crazy. And so we were adding personality, uh, which was really innovative at the time. So all of these early incarnations, and of course, everything we were building on, back when we started the globe, it it used to cost $4,000 per megabit of bandwidth. So imagine, you know, we had to go and do a deal with MCI. I can't remember what the full name of the company was. A Sprint or MCI, I don't remember, to get a T1 line, which was one and a half megabits, and it was like four and a half thousand dollars a month. And computing power was one one thousandth of what it is today. And the storage costs were, again, you know, it, you'd be counting in megabytes how many storage, how big your hard drive was versus the terabytes today. So clunky, expensive, slow, but all the same stuff, except today it's way more seamless and elegant and just works in a, in a more fluid manner. But you can easily also imagine today where things might be in five to 10 years where you're goggling into the metaverse and you, 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 you're not using a keyboard and everything you'll see today of using a, an app on a flat screen on your phone and how Facebook looks today will look antiquated and ridiculous. Yeah, so, so, you know, the the big disruptors of the day, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, uh, you know, Uber has commissions these fleets of cars, but they don't own anything. Airbnb rents homes, but they don't necessarily own in any homes. Uh, what what do you think the sort of value of of these companies is and what are they sort of doing to create these immense values? And if you say, I don't know, say if not all these companies are public, but if you were an investor, what would you be uh, intrigued by or what would you kind of not be? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really interesting, and when I'm thinking about it right now, it's it's over time, all of these companies and the industries ebb and flow. So there's always some sort of creative destruction occurring. Uh, and at first, you could say, yeah, Amazon didn't make anything. They simply created a marketplace where everyone else could sell their stuff, and they became the ultimate network effect middle person where they actually could control pricing and promotions. But what they ended up doing once they became a Goliath marketplace was noticing, well, everyone's buying product X or Y. Um, Maybe we should start making our own product X or Y because then we could own more of the margin and we'll just squeeze out that other other company. So now you're seeing Amazon increasingly manufacturing. You know, some of them are completely new categories like the Amazon Echo, but they're very quickly moving in on a lot of different manufacturers that had been selling goods on their site and replacing them. And in, in some cases, instead of selling Apple products, they started creating their own Apple brand, their own Amazon branded yeah, products. Yeah, like Amazon essential stuff. Yeah, 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 like whether it's readers or phones or, you know, the Apple TV, the, the Fire uh, d- dongle. So it's going back and forth. And I could see Amazon now moving away from just being a marketplace and gradually becoming a manufacturer of key verticals. Now, likewise, uh, creative destruction, you know, Uber and Lyft come along, create a marketplace just with great network effects of allowing you to connect drivers to passengers. But what else is going on now? Now they're getting in on the game of wanting to potentially partner with manufacturers to create fleets of their own cars, uh, which might eventually become AI-driven self-driving cars. And of course, the, the margins might be interesting, more interesting if they could own and sell or partner with these manufacturers instead of just being the service provider. So they're ebbing and flowing. And I think as an investor, you're always playing catch up or always trying to play the prediction game of when is the next ebb 
and I need to get ahead of that. I need to get on the ground level of that next ebb. And then when it starts to flow, I need to make sure I've exited out of that first ebb so that I don't get caught on that down, downward cycle and find the next ebb. So you're constantly having to get in, get out, get in, get out. Uh, everyone wanted to get into Facebook when Facebook was starting. There's a lot of people now that want to get out of Facebook and figure out where's the next Facebook because this current Facebook is, is sort of reached potentially its peak and might start to crash. Yeah. In the, in, the, in, the, in the next decade, what do you think are going to be the prevailing trends in tech and industry and, and you know, with your experience at Slated, like what do you, what are your maybe two or three big predictions for the next like 10 years? Well, the first one that I more than hinted at, which is going to probably have the most pervasive impact on everybody's lives in the world is what the blockchain, blockchain is going right, to do. Right. It's actually the least sexy because it's a reinvention of the internet protocol stack, which just doesn't mean anything to anyone, but it simply means you're going to be experiencing services. Everything you're used to using on the internet right now is suddenly going to be more decentralized. Control and power is going to flow back to you. Um, so to the extent you care about these issues of privacy and control and protecting yourself and your data and all that, it's going to flow back into your hands. And at a more tangible level, I think it's going to have an impact on global social democracy. So how you live within your countries is going to start to be impacted, I think, in the next 10 to 20 years with quadratic voting and this whole notion that you will now be able to vote instantly on any issue and understand exactly the impact of your vote and your your vote and your political system won't be subverted so easily by Russian trolls and all these things. To me, that is one of the most ubiquitous and powerful impacts that's going to happen because of technology. But if you want to talk a little bit more, a little more here and now and, and tangible um, yeah, AR, there's no question that we've gone through a little bit of that hype cycle and decline, but more and more people are realizing, okay, the intermediate step to full VR immersion is augmented reality where, hey, people like me who can't remember people's faces and names will get a little pop-up notification in my eye telling me who you are, who you are, what I need to know about you, the key stats, who else you know between you, like all the key things that are handy on your phone will eventually be in your eyeball whether it's through a device or a little implantable thing. So that is going to have a game-changing effect because you can now participate in events, social events, video events, semi-quasi-immersive events that are taking place anywhere in the world. And that's going to dramatically change your need to move yourself and displace yourself to participate yeah. in a way that we're not used to today. So I'd say that that's going to be the next giant thing. And of course... Like everybody else, I'm waiting for self-driving cars to come along. Oh, my God. The day I don't have to look up and I can actually be on my screen full time in the car watching a movie to and fro. Yeah. He's sleeping. Old. He's an Angelino. Yeah. Know, I mean, so. I want it to happen so bad, but not even just for that. I mean, yeah. we already do that when we get on a plane and we can just zone out for 12 hours traveling halfway around the world. But we waste a tremendous amount of time on the local commute or even going between L.A. and San Francisco. A train would be nice. But a self-driving pod. Like, I can't wait till cars are not just self-driving cars. They are self-driving pods. They've been completely redesigned from the ground up to accommodate single passengers 
or entire families and they show up on demand and they're comfortable and cozy and you're eating food and having a drink and watching something or zoning out and it's it's small and it has no environmental impact and it's eco-friendly and takes up no room and there's no traffic and you can you can get in and out of one anywhere anytime and get to your destination five times faster than in a car because they can pack them onto the roads super tight and super fast i mean i'm i'm this this is all a wet dream for me i can't wait for this to happen so hopefully sooner than later yeah, that's a uh, that's the second thing you were mentioning. Where I have a friend who works in San Francisco at a high level San Francisco firm, and he says the big thing that's going to happen is the decentralization. Just being like you can be anywhere and do your job. Like it's oh, yeah. uh, you can you don't have to. There's not going to be like oh you have to go here or that you have to move to New York to get this job. It's like everybody can just be wherever they want to be. Yep. which is interesting. Yep. And you can, you know, remote, and he's saying, you know, more in the short term, it's like remote working is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger, less office space, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's already having an impact now on, on my own startup. We're just under 20 employees, but more than half of the team is completely remote across Eastern Europe because it's just way cheaper and I'm finding even better talent than I could find locally. And then the rest of the local team, they only come into the office two to three days a week when we want to do team related camaraderie and hanging out and chatting and a little brainstorming when it's heads down coding time everyone works from home and we're all on slack and i mean we're using today's tools but it's not hard to imagine how much more immersive it'll be tomorrow but that remote flexibility is becoming the new norm and it doesn't it hasn't had a negative impact it's actually a hybrid it's not 100% remote all the time because people actually like to get together yeah. and do stuff for it's the like same a reason it's like communal value yeah, yeah yeah it's just for the same reason that we actually still like to go to the movies young kids like to go to the movies too yeah. this whole notion that they'll never go to the movies they're just going to be on youtube on their phone at home all the time no way everyone gets cabin fever kids want to get out of the house adults want to get out of the house doing something communal whether it's through goggling in or whether it's in a theater the communal part is a is a must have and therefore the office of tomorrow will still have this hybrid dynamic but the remote flexibility and just how immersive you want things to be you'll be able to dial up dial down and and make it so that it feels almost like you're surrounded by the people you want to be surrounded with all the time but can switch it off whenever you want cool Steph Paterno, thanks so much for joining us. It was a My really good, good conversation, <laughs> and uh, I think we solved everything. And I think yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, where can we follow you? What are you working on? What are some things, if people are interested in what you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, so find me on Twitter uh, uh, Steph- at Stefan Paterno, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-P-A-T-E-R-N-O-T. I have to spell it out because it's not obvious. Uh, same handle on Facebook, Instagram, basically everywhere. And, uh, yeah, my, my book, A Very Public Offering, The Story of the Globe.com, and The First Internet Revolution just came out. It's on Amazon, although I highly recommend the audiobook, which I've been getting amazing feedback on. Apparently, I have a voice for radio, so uh, I'm like, uh, okay. I, uh, is it on Audible or where, where it's can on you Audible. find it? Yep. yep. Uh, it just came out, and uh, I think it's doing pretty well so far. And if you aren't the reader type, even the audi- Audible reader type uh it's the stories being told in nat geo's valley of the boom which airs january 13th worldwide great thanks for joining us my pleasure this is 137 p.m if you want to own the future start this minute live from the bar cart is a gallery media production